0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: We're going to kick off the podcast uh, with just a brief reading from a little uh, work of uh, fiction that uh, many of you, if you're like me, you were forced to read at some point and maybe didn't enjoy it. Oh, or maybe you got to, you uh, you had the opportunity to read it uh, later when you could enjoy it and appreciate uh, the uh, the many values uh, of the text. Uh, but here's just a little bit from the novel uh, "The Grapes of Wrath" by John Steinbeck. The dawn came, but no day. In the gray sky, a red sun appeared—a dim red circle that gave a little light like dusk. And as that day advanced, the dusk slipped back toward darkness, and the wind cried and whimpered over the fallen corn. Men and women huddled in their houses, and they tied handkerchiefs over their noses, and they went out and wore goggles to protect their eyes. When the night came again, it was black night, for the stars could not pierce the dust to get down, and the window lights could not even spread beyond their own yards. Now the dust was evenly mixed with the air, and the emulsion of dust and air... Houses were shut tight and cloth wedged around doors and windows, but the dust came in so thinly that it could not be seen in the air, and it settled like pollen on the chairs and tables, on the dishes. The people brushed it from their shoulders. Little lines of dust lay at the door sills. And it goes on like that, yeah. <laughs> but but I, um, it's a
0: bleak existence. it is a
1: bleak existence, and Steinbeck captures it so so beautifully on the page and uh, and since we are in this podcast discussing uh, some of the science behind the Dust Bowl of the Great Depression and the uh, the measures that were used uh, then and now to counter these traumatic ecological effects. It seemed fitting to kick it off with that.
0: Yeah, which was, of course, the Dust Bowl is the the backdrop for the Grapes of Wrath. And what we're talking about is a time period between 1931 and 1939. Mm -hmm. So a good eight years of um, this sort of existence of drought and uh winds and and clouds of dust that yeah. just plagued people, and
1: it just must have seemed like the end of the world for many people it was mm-hmm. um, well
0: and of course and the, the other part of this is that the great depression was going on right so um these are good field times, halcyon days, not at all,
1: yeah, now, the roots of it uh kind of stretch back, of course, the roots of any bad time are always uh always go back into a more prosperous eras mm-hmm. um so you, uh, you, you go back uh, to the uh, to the late 19th century. You have pioneers that moved into the semi-arid midwestern southern plains of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they're enjoying some prosperous years uh, in there. They're they're planting, they're harvesting. It's going well, um, but then a recession sets in following uh, the First World War. Mm-hmm. Farmers need to up their profits, right? So they need to up their production, so they turn to the machines.
0: The machines machines.
1: Um, and not so much robot overlords or anything, but rather mechanized farming techniques. Mm -hmm. They bought plows and other farming equipment. And between 1925 and 1930, more than five million acres of previously unfarmed land went under the plow. And uh, so they, they were getting record crops in, like, 1931.
0: Yeah, which was great, but it mm-hmm. also led, uh, led to overproduction, right? So right. the supply and demand was way off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a, as a result, you had a bunch of wheat um, that was overproduced with the Great Depression. Right. And that led to severely reduced market prices. Yeah, there's
1: too much wheat, and there's not as much money to buy it with anymore. So, right. So, so what are farmers going to do? They're going to try and earn back their production cost. By planting more wheat, expanding their their fields even more in an effort to get blood out of that stone.
0: Yeah, but the problem here is that wheat is not so great uh, in in a drought. In fact, the natural drought resistant grasses are best. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of those were peeled away with the plowing, and the wheat uh, again was placed in there. And also, any unused fields were also left bare. Right. So, what do you see happening here? You see a lot of dust.
1: Right. And plus, uh, plow-based farming, it tills the soil. Mm -hmm. So the the fertile topsoil that's so essential to anything growing out there, it gets, uh, it's it's literally turned up into the wind. Mm -hmm. The wind, it's, 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 it's turned up by the plow, the wind catches it, and it blows away. (laughs) So, and without it, so the ground becomes less nurturing to anything you're trying to grow in it, and it becomes even more susceptible to drought.
0: Right. And then, of course, in 1932, what they saw happen again, this, this began in 1931, but in 1932, that, that's really when the drought set in and the yeah. rain stopped.
1: High temperatures, the sun's just baking everything.
0: Yeah. In just one year, there were 14 dust storms reported. Uh, of course, these were known as the Black Blizzards, and the number actually increased to nearly 40.
1: Right, and you should. I'll make sure that I include some sort of a, a historic photograph on the blog post that accompanies this mm-hmm. uh, this way, this uh, episode. But uh, if you do just a Google image search for photos uh, Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. uh, you will see some of these just just really apocalyptic looking images of just I mean just stuff right out of uh, the grapes of wrath. Uh, you know these these thin farmers and their their families standing mm-hmm. there, and on the horizon just dark billowing. Dust clouds.
0: Yeah, because what we're talking about, just by the end of 1934, right? Just just a couple years into this, 35 million acres of farmland ruined and the topsoil covering 100 million acres blown away. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the region, again, as you talked about, was the the southern Great Plains, but, um, and, and really in particular, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, New Mexico, and Colorado were affected pretty greatly.
1: Yeah. So what happens? I mean the, the the ramifications of this you have farmers losing their land mm-hmm. they 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 can't stay they can't they can't pay for it uh they're having to flee elsewhere to find work they're going to California and try and find uh you know migrant labor jobs
0: um Yeah if you've ever heard the term oki
1: that's what it's from that's right?
0: a pejorative yeah. term yeah referring to people who you know you could have come from Kansas but you might have been called an oki after Oklahoma mm-hmm. if you showed up in California uh, mainly because there were only so many jobs available in um in, in California, and of course, all of the, the people coming in from the Great Plains really just made all the uh, the people in California pretty upset.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of animosity <clears throat> between uh, the you know, native Californias and the right. uh, the the foreign workers in their midst, uh, exacerbated
0: yeah. again by the economic conditions.
1: So what so what really fascinates about me about all this is that I mean, you have this uh, this ecological disaster that occurs mm-hmm. uh, due to. Um, in, in large part to mechanized agriculture, uh, humans remake their world in attempt to uh, to better feed themselves and to uh, to better um, supply the standard of living they've become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they almost create a desert in the middle of the United States. Um, and uh, and l- luckily, people realize w- what was happening, you know, and then they were like, well, let's let's fight this. Let's let's solve this problem before it gets any worse um because it was already pretty bad. So it's it's interesting to look at these at some of the steps that they took to to fight the dust bowl, mm-hmm. to fix what had been broken. And that's
0: what I think is so fascinating about this because it really is this large-scaled effort um by the government to mm-hmm. to come in and and uh you know, try to reverse nature. Real, right. Well, actually, we shouldn't the, the anti-nature I, I suppose you could say.
1: Well, it, it to, to sort of take an, a, a more modern and futurist way of looking at it, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like when, when you look at uh, examples of climate change mm-hmm. and people uh, l- looking at the way that that humans have remade the the climate of the planet and then trying – to To fix it, sometimes with crazy schemes that also tinker with the environment, like the idea of of putting a whole bunch of mirrors in orbit, or mm-hmm. essentially uh, setting off volcano. Okay, I mean, there, there are a whole list of of different uh, crazy seed ge- clouding, seed clouding, uh-huh. various uh uh ge- geo engineering uh, techniques that have been proposed over the years. Mm-hmm. Where uh, you know it comes off like the water in the tub is too cold, so let's add some hot, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> and then you can imagine a situation where the water in the in the tub is too hot, so let's add some cold. Eventually. Does the uh, the tub overflow? I don't know.
0: Yeah. when we talk about sea cloudy, we're talking actually about munitions shot up into the air, uh, particularly during uh, or right before the Olympics in Beijing. Right. And they were doing that because they were trying to get actual rainfall to come down to clear some of the pollutants Mm -hmm. in that city. So that's uh, one of the things we're talking about. We're talking about engineering your environment. Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, actually uh, created something called the Shelter Belt Project.
1: But, of course, there were other steps that were taken on a more economic level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Various stuff with the New Deal, um, Civil Conservation Corps that came in to you know created all these new jobs, and people were going around planting trees and digging ditches and building Mm -hmm. reservoirs. But uh, the part that yeah, the part that really interested us was uh, were were some of these things such as the Shelter Belts, right? Which uh, again, imagine a. Uh, the, the, situation here, you've tinkered with the natural environment. You've taken the landscape and changed it into wheat fields. Mm-hmm. And your problem here is that wind is just sweeping across with all this dust. So you want to somehow break that wind. Right. No way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you break it with trees, not yes. with flatulence. Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. Yes. You, you want to break up the wind. You want to, you, you want to build a wall against the wind. Mm-hmm. And what is nature's wall against the wind? Um, trees. In, in many cases, it is trees. Mm-hmm. So the idea of these shelter belts is to is to plant rows of trees beside fields to slow the wind and reduce wind erosion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and of course, that wouldn't be the only thing. Also, there was also this uh, push for no till farming, uh, so that you're not tur- taking your precious uh, topsoil and mm-hmm. turning it up and letting the wind take it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's uh, and then there's also strip cropping. Uh, there was another technique which was um. Uh, you, you've seen pictures of this. I had seen pictures of this and didn't really realize what I was looking at till now. And, uh, and this is where you have, uh, a strip of crops planted and mm-hmm. there's a strip of dirt and, a, and some crops planted and a strip of dirt. And from an, in an aerial view especially, it looks very, it's very beautiful. It's like, hey, you know, there's a pattern there across the fields. Uh, you've probably seen it, uh, if you've had any kind of, uh, you know, flights, uh, mm-hmm. you know, across the states. Uh, but the idea here is you're gonna use this, uh, section and you're gonna let this section of soil, uh, replenish itself. Right. And then the next year the parts, uh, the, Part The strips that are crops will be dirt, and the strips that that are dirt will be crops. But uh, the shelter belts, how did this play out? Uh, What was the original idea?
0: Well, I mean, this this idea was pretty huge. It was a project that was estimated to cost $75 million over a period of 12 years. Um, And, you know, of course... Funding disputes arose. FDR had to transfer the program from the Civilian Conservation Corps to the WPA, where the project was a little bit more hamstrung. Um So what they were talking about is replacing farmland with forest. And that, of course, did not uh, go over well with all the farmers.
1: Right. Yeah, they were talking about forest-like structures that mimic natural conditions. Basically walls made out of forest mm-hmm. and then yeah this side uh argues about it this side brings up some concerns and the the uh the, the finished product is somewhat diminished uh from the original uh design
0: yeah and in fact you know uh on a lot of the the land that was supposed to be used kind of got um attenuated to the point where you know some some of the original plan was like halved the amount of land that was actually mm-hmm. able to be planted. Also, what was planted um, was very different from the original plan. You know, conifers were something that they thought would do well in some areas, uh, but politics and economics forced them to instead rely on cottonwoods. And the reason why they planted cottonwoods is because they grew pretty quickly and they were a much more flashy, obvious sign that there was a plan in place and right. being cultivated. And people were really kind of antsy about this. Again, remember the Great Depression, um, you know, people are in dire circumstances. They don't want to wait 12 years to see this plan come to fruition.
1: Right. And and you have politicians involved in this that are very concerned with not only the uh, the act of helping, but the mm-hmm. perceived act of helping. So.
0: Right, right. And, but I mean, it's a huge effort, right? Because yeah. you have to get everybody on board with you. You have to get the farmers, you have to get the politicians, you have to get the, the public. Um, and of course, it's just always a problem when you try to get a bunch of people in a room to, to agree on something.
1: So was it successful? Um, well, on, on on one hand, no. They, I mean, they weren't able to completely... Um, Reverse the reverse effects. The effects. Yeah. Uh, about ninety percent of the four hundred and fifty million hectares of arid land in North America still suffers from moderate to severe desert uh, desertification.
0: Mm-hmm. But, um, they did say that it reduced it by 65% of the amount of soil blowing around. So yeah, definitely. So definitely a
1: success when you look at it from that view.
0: Yeah. Know. And of course, this is one of those things when you step back, historically, it looks like much more of a success than at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some farming practices came out of it that were really beneficial that are still being used today. Right. All right. We are going to talk about Stalin and why he led a, a quack biologist create uh his own sort of Great Stalin plan for the transformation of nature. That's the actual name of that.
1: The Great Stalin Plan for the Transformation of Nature. I love Which, that. It's it's so beautifully um Soviet, you know?
0: It is. It's a we we will bend nature to our will beginning <laughs> now.
1: Yeah it was uh this takes us back to uh October nineteen forty eight. Uh Soviet government announces that uh uh, what was actually the world's first state-centered program to reverse human-induced climate change. Uh, it was they were going to construct 5.7 million hectares of forest in the Russian South, and um, there, you know, there were going to be irrigation canals were going to mm-hmm. be built. Uh, it, it was a crazy, gigantic uh, project. There were going to be shelter belts, like we were talking about, these poli- these tree- forest strips to break right. up the wind. And uh, and they were going to create – like the, the idea was to sort of recreate this imagined prehistoric state of the land.
0: Yes, they were going to try to – change the topography of this land, which I think is so ambitious and, and so sort of wonderful. But of course the problem is that Stalin had, um, Been taken by the ideas of this quack biologist, Trofim Lyshenko, and this guy was given carte blanche over Soviet agriculture science, um, and he had no solid scientific theory on how to properly cultivate forest shelter beds, and he actually understood plant and trees as coexistence in terms of class warfare. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and, and I mean, seriously, this is, this is sort of what his, um, whole plan was predicated on. Okay, and, and here's a little excerpt of about what he actually had to say about it. And I will try my my Russian accent, although I'm going to apologize in advance. Forestries are mortally afraid of steppe grasses, particularly couch grass and catchweed. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. The first detachment <laughs> of steppe vegetation in the struggle between the steppe and the forest. And then he goes on to say, planting oaks in dense clusters, however, could give them an upper hand in this battle Wild plants, particularly various species of forest trees, possess the biologically useful property of self-thinning.
1: At this point, someone would want to interrupt and be like, Dude, are we still talking about forests? What are you what are you really getting at?
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, it gets better. It gets better. He says dense sprouts of wild plant species oaks in this case, so regulate their number by means of self-thinning that its individual members cannot interfere or oppress each other and at the same time the entire area is occupied by this particular species, other species competitors of the given species are not admitted to this area. <laughs> And so I love this. Um, And this is according to Malcolm McGrath. He's the author of Stalin and Modernity. Uh, he says the fittest oak trees survive and pass their genetic material to their offspring, right? Mm-hmm. While the less fit trees do not survive or reproduce. Leschenko's suggestion that oak trees band together and regulate their own growth so as not to oppress or interfere with each other violated this b- most basic notion of Darwin's theory. Leschenko had a misunderstanding, basically, of genetics and biology, and he couldn't help really to, to anthropomorphize Uh, vegetation and imbue it with human traits
1: like i can't help but imagine him like throwing a meeting together at work and and doing this thing where like the the proper trees to be planted will be the ones that do not steal other people's lunch from the refrigerator and you know or just taking out some of the kind of personal vendetta yeah yeah
0: yeah and those oh those shrubs oh how (laughs) they hate those trees and those trees hate those shrubs (laughs) Um, but it, I mean, this was kind of a big deal because this was a huge project. Right. And in fact, uh, in celebration of the plan, they had symphonies and stories were written and a painting showed, uh, Stalin unfurling maps of his agriculture schemes. Yeah.
1: But as so often happens with, uh, with schemes that are so attached to an individual. Yeah. The individual dies, Stalin ends up dying, uh, in the and then in, in, in it's, it kind of falls apart.
0: Yeah, see, that's, that's, that's the problem of a dictatorship in this, uh, in, well, in many cases, but, uh, particularly here, because there's not a lot of voices that are being heard, a lot of voices of dissent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there weren't a, a, you know, a committee of members brought in to say, hey, let's talk about this plan and how best to execute it. It was basically the, the brainchild of this one guy who, um, who just thought it all had to do with, uh, with these different uh, socioeconomic classes of plants.
1: Right. Now, uh, throughout the world, I mean, we continue this this struggle with and against nature. Uh, you know, obviously, continues to play out uh, in, anywhere there's uh, desertification or climate change uh, mm-hmm. taking place. Uh, I mean, it, just in the, the same areas, uh, the same regions that were affected by the Dust Bowl. I mean, people still make it there. Uh, it's still their job and their 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 passion to figure out how best to balance agricultural uh, practices and the natural environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in other areas, for instance, there's the uh, Green Wall Sahara Initiative, uh, which uh, called for the, the planting of 300 million uh, trees and 3 million hectares of, uh, of, of land stretching across uh, the African continent. Uh, and the whole idea here is, of course, to, uh, to keep uh, the Sahara from advancing. Mm-hmm. To keep, uh, desertification from taking hold in, in, in crucial, uh, land areas. Right. Uh, and then in, in China, there is, uh, there's likewise this, uh, this green wall project there to, uh, prevent the Gobi Desert from expanding. And so that they've been, uh, projecting this, uh, uh, 2800 mile stretch uh, that goes from uh, outer Beijing through inner Mongolia
0: and this is again a forest belt
1: right a yeah. forest belt to serve as that natural wall against mm-hmm. the winds and the desert that it carries
0: and this is actually um, that the dust that's carried over is called the yellow dragon and each spring the dust from from those northern deserts is swept up and it just whips eastward blasting to beijing mm. and in fact in the sierra nevadas in california they've found evidence of that dust from China, you know spreading over to the united states and actually changing they think there's some there, um some somewhat definitive results coming back from studies now actually changing the climate there in the sierra nevada
1: wow yeah so these yeah these dust storms uh they can uh, pose quite the problem uh, for well, human civilization. Right. And, and I mean, is, and for uh, for agricultural practices, especially.
0: Yeah. And, and in a lot of cases, this is a um, life or death matter. Right. Right. Uh, and trying to control it just sort of makes sense. I mean, it, it's uh, unfortunate that there are uh, ways that we have uh, sort of screwed up the land. Right. Man has. And then, of course, there's. You know, obvious weather patterns that we can't do anything about. But as much as we can go in and ameliorate this, you know, the better. And it actually gives me hope for terraforming in the future sometime. Yeah, you yeah. Know? If we
1: know what we're doing when we go into go into these uh, these foreign worlds and mm-hmm. attempt to recreate Earth like conditions, uh, we'll have a better understanding of what Earth like conditions actually are.
0: Right. I think the more manipulation we can, uh, you know. <laughs> do here on earth, mm-hmm. a, a positive manipulation, the better our chances are at understanding other atmospheres and uh, environments and sort of adapting to them.
1: Yeah. yeah so, I think
0: so, you know, we talk about the Dyson sphere. We talk about all these other, um, sort of what seem like pie in the sky projects in the future, but really, I mean, this is, this is, um, Sort of like where the rubber meets the road, in terms of trying to carry that out at a different level.
1: Yeah, and I think it's that's, that's one of the things that makes the Dust Bowl so fascinating, and 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 FDR's uh, and the U.S. government's uh, approach to dealing with it. It, mm-hmm. it serves as an interesting, interesting model and an interesting, uh, you know, example. Well, all right, let's uh, let's ask the robot to bring us some mail. All right, thank you. Uh, let's see what we have here. We heard from uh, a listener by the name of Inc. No, Cole. Sorry, the email confused me. They're ink and in the email, and then they're Cole at the bottom. Uh, Cole's, uh, points out that HSW. Uh, we were talking about uh, using saying HSW here at work instead mm. of How Stuff Works, right? Uh, and he says HSW has five syllables because the W has three syllables. Uh, how Stuff Works has three syllables total. So, uh, just clarifying there because I, I think I might have uh, uh, said something about uh, how it has the same number of syllables if you actually speak the abbreviation, but yeah, you're actually using more syllables. So
0: HSW How Stuff Works. I still think that it's still more economic to to use the HSW.
1: H-S-W that's five how stuff works that's three I I don't know you you break it down into syllables H-S-W is just silly but
0: yeah but I'm I'm not going to draw out the W yeah see how fast I'm saying it W
1: well okay alright I'll let you have that one Um, let's see who else did we hear from here uh, we heard from a listener by the name of Carlin uh, writes in and says you failed to uh, talking about our protest episodes. We mm-hmm. did a couple of them. That you failed to mention one of the most successful protest movements of our time, the Tea Party protests. These started across the country after the announcement of Obamacare. They resulted in the election of Scott Brown, uh, the change of, of control of Congress, and a takeover of the Republican Party. Yeah, so I think that's valid. Uh, no matter what you think of the uh, Tea Party, it uh, certainly is a grassroots uh, movement that uh, yeah, certainly involved protest. You're making a face at me, though. I'm not. A,
0: oh, okay. Well, okay. this is not a face. This is just a, hey, that's a, that's a piece of mail right okay. there.
1: All right. So uh, anyway, uh, Carlin brings up a good point. Uh, so I thought I, I do. Yeah, that. I agree. And uh, who else did we hear from here? We heard from listener Sarah. Sarah writes in, and uh, she uh, shared some interesting links with us that we'll uh, we'll have to uh, look at in. Uh in, in more detail later, but uh, she also added, uh, During the summers, I either work at summer camps in Colorado or participate in medical camps in Africa. This gives me a lot of travel time to sit and think and brood. It's for this reason that when I'm traveling, or just uh, left to my own uh, devices, I like to tune uh, into HSW, or, she, mm-hmm. HHSW, mm-hmm. Uh, because it keeps my self-abusive brain occupied and less likely to ruin my good mood. I'm not sure if that is just masking a deeper uh, societal issue, but it is a good enough reason for me to keep... My podcast handy. I'm a big fan of the HSW podcast and I am happy to blame you guys for my healthy state of mind. Keep up the brilliant work. Ah,
0: I like that uh, self-abusive yeah. brain. I have to say that I think we all struggle yeah. with that sometimes. Definitely,
1: so. definitely. So uh, yeah, to any extent that we can, uh, we can help you guys out and occupy your mind and getting it uh, get your mind rolling um, around some um, issues outside yourself. Then that's great. and Occupy uh, your
0: mind. Now that's a protest.
1: There you go. Occupy your mind and. Uh, And also it sounds like, uh, Sarah's up to some really good, uh, uh, stuff here, participating in medical camps in Africa and all. So, good, good work. If you would like to share anything with us, you can do so, uh, in a number of ways. There is a Facebook page, of course, uh, we're stuffed to blow the mind on there. And if you prefer to use Twitter, we are on Twitter, uh, under the handle blow the mind.
0: And if you would like to expand beyond 140 characters, you may do so by sending us an email at blowthemind at Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.